Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon and welcome to the 2021 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Tammy and I am a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. And it is my pleasure to introduce our panel, Show Not Tell Sports Storytelling. Our panelists today are Michael Lewis, journalist and author of numerous New York Times bestsellers, and Adam McKay, director, producer, screenwriter, and comedian. The panel will run for 35 minutes and we will leave 10 minutes at the end for questions. I encourage you to post your questions on Twitter using the hashtag ShowNotTell or using the question and answer function at the top corner of the platform. Questions will then be selected by the moderator. With that, I'll turn it over to Adam and Michael. Thank you. Mr. Lewis. Mr. McKay, it's a delight to see you. So good to see you. So uh, we're talking about showing, not telling. We, and we, to, so our audience knows we've done this kind of thing before, but it's, I think it's always been around one of your movies. I think we've been on stage before several times and it's always been about either the big short or vice or one, but we've, always, we've always talked just movies. So I'm really looking forward to getting a chance to talk about me. We are gonna mostly focus on Michael Lewis, but not his books. We're gonna actually just talk about him personally, his fitness routine, his finances, his house. It's gonna be like a celebrity deep dive we're gonna go into here. Well, that's what I signed up for. So <laughs> give me your worst. No, we will talk about sports and analytics, I'm sure. Uh, but it's, uh, so um, we were talking before we even kind of got into this, we were talking about um, uh, my most recent project. And I'd love to come back to that at some point. Um, yes. But let's start, let's start with sports because, uh, you know, You've made sports movies, um, but start. Tell me a little bit about your history with sports, like, like you, not to, not spectating, but playing. Like, what was your relationship with sports as a kid? So I always think of the Jerry Seinfeld joke from like thirty years ago, where he says that you know the reason we're all sports fans is because there's one point like an orange falls off a table, and we're like forty years old and we catch it. And there's that moment where like, I could have been a pro. And I think we all have that feeling that there were those moments where it clicked for us, whether it was on a basketball court or a baseball field, where we caught a little wisp of that flow. Um, there's an amazing old episode of Taxi where Tony Danza is like a terrible boxer, but he explains why he keeps boxing. And he boils it down to like one combination that he threw was like a three punch combination where it just felt right. And then the rest of the fight, he got his butt kicked. So that's kind of my sports history. I have like six little sweaty highlights in my mind from playing basketball, like a no look pass I threw, or I played pickup ball against Jimmy Black, who was like Michael Jordan's backcourt mate at UNC and kind of played a respectable game. And after the game, he was like, where do you play, man? Like I played in college. And like, 
I've just nurtured that like a child for like 30 years, even though it was like, I'm sure he was being polite. But uh, yeah, my sports history was I rode the bench uh, my senior year in high school playing basketball. Uh, I was a baseball player that needed glasses and didn't realize it. So I had plenty of experiences with losing fly balls in those deep, deep skies. And uh, that's always a good memory. But, you know, a couple of times I would catch the ball, you know, I would catch it on the sweet spot of the bat and knock it off the fence and uh, felt feel like a big shot for about 45 seconds. So it's a pretty unremarkable sports history, but God darn, I love it. I still play pickup basketball to this day. Uh, I play like three times a week. I can't even jump over like a, a pizza delivery menu, let alone a phone book anymore, but I've got an okay jump shot and I can use my left hand and I have a surprisingly good handle, but don't let any of that, you know, persuade you that I anything but suck. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just love it. I just love playing. Um, it's sort of like singing for me, like I'm a terrible singer. And because of that, I will sing all the time because I have no expectations of greatness. I'm not hard on myself because I'm kind of tone deaf. Right. So that's kind of my relationship with sports. I've had about eight or nine moments in my life where I did something really like I caught a little bit of a groove and that's been enough to sustain my fandom for my entire life. But now you were a little more serious, right? I know you went to that school in New Orleans, right? The famous the uh, high school that the Manning brothers went to. And so the Manning brothers has, have transformed the reputation of the Isidore Newman school because it was, it was a manual training center for Jewish orphans in the beginning. And it was, a, it was largely a Jewish school even when I went to it. Um, but it ended up getting better and better at sports somehow. Um, and by the time I got there, it was pretty in a pretty intense basketball school and, and, and a good foot, actually good all around sports school. So yes, and there's a whole thing about the South and sports. It's like, you, you, as a boy, you kind of, it, it's hard not to play things. Um, so yeah, my identity was all wrapped up in it. And I was actually just good enough at a couple of things for a while to delude myself into thinking, this is what I do. <laughs> I'm talking about like at age 12, 13, 14. I know what you mean. I, I need no other source of status, like grades or whatever girl, whatever it was, just the sports was an identity and, uh, and, and, and an occupation. It was like what I did all day. And it depended on the season. And I played on all the teams and, and absolutely loved it. And was just constrained in the end by physical ability. I, I played baseball through my freshman year in college. That's uh, not bad. That's not bad. So I got, and I was, you know, I was like, I was like a junk ball pitcher uh, who had moments of exact, exactly, you know, it's funny. You know how you, when you go on to, if you don't play golf, and you go and play a round of golf and you hit one drive and it's up against the sky and it goes 300 yards, it's all you remember. And I, to this day, carry with me memories. Uh, it's like a highlight reel in my head that is such a distortion of who I actually was. And as time goes on, I mean, the fish gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so, uh, so I had that. 
I had the last formal, the last formal uh, interaction with sports I had was I was the point guard on the London School of Economics basketball team. Come on, this is the best. It was the best because and you guys were ranked, right? You were ranked 14th nationally until you lost to Marquette. <laughs> so I once wrote a piece about Shane Battier. And I said, when I met him, I said, you know, you and I have something in common. And he said, what? I said, we both played in two national college basketball championship games. And he said, what? And I said, I played in the British National College Basketball Championship two years in a row. We lost in the finals. And, um, and what had happened, which was so curious, was the London School of Economics, the year before I got there, had a kind of really left-wing commie uh, student council who didn't approve of competitive sports. And they took the whole government-issued uh, budget. It was like you know, like a hundred thousand bucks for all their sports. And they, they bought a racehorse with it. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and the racehorse, it was just like, it was glue two years later. It was like a bad racehorse and it became a scandal. Like it was in the newspapers when I got there. And so the administration came down on them and said, you're not going to have discretion over how this is spent. We're going to have real sports. And so they funded this basketball team and the basketball team was almost all Americans, just guys who had played like maybe in high school. And, uh, and but, you know, the British, they dribbled like that. Yeah. And, and so all, all of a sudden, you know, all there were 10 guys living their fantasy, being paid to travel, paid. We are all our, all our travel costs, hotel costs, to travel all over England and Europe, playing co other colleges and, and, and semi-pro teams. It was a total gas, but, but, I think I asked you this because we both now created stuff about sports and I can't say that, that my experiences as a kid completely inform how I, my interest in writing about it. And, you know, it, it, it hasn't, it's, it's like there's something inside me that was created then that is now expressing itself in different ways uh, when I do stuff. Um, there's a real connection. I, I, we were talking about the idea that there's like five or six. I was talking with a friend recently that there's five or six kind of fundamental things that the human animal loves to do. And it's like sex, raise a family, eat, sleep, play. And yeah. like everything we do is all to ensure those five activities that all the stock market, that all this stuff. And then sometimes those activities invade the things that we do outside that we're trying to make happen. So in other words, the sense of play goes into the stock market. Yep. The sense of sexual desire goes into, you know, a hospital. I don't even know, I'm picking random <laughs> I was, wait, I was waiting for what, how you could finish that sentence. All right. A circus. Maybe I should have said a circus. Doctors circus are very important. Yes. There are heroes today. So I won't do that. I won't say hospital. But that those kind of five fundamental conditions underpin every story that we have. I guess you could almost throw just stay alive in there too, right? Like, you know, run away from like a, a bear, you know, right. like don't get attacked on the streets. Like, safety in other words right and 
But the play is a really big one, man. It's like, it's how we learn to be top line predators. It's a joy, it combines joy with skill, creativity, and engages, especially for us, you know, all the best parts of our brain. It, and it, it, I mean, it's been amazing. I, I'm curious what you think about watching this pandemic, because all of a sudden you have a story for the first time that's bigger than those five kind of conditional human stories or activities. Were you, what did you notice about the interaction between like sports and play and the pandemic or global warming or like suddenly you're starting to see these stories that are so much bigger than that. And like, didn't Kyrie Irving at one point say like, why are we even playing the season? Like he kind of had this right. forlorn like Chopin moment where he's like, what's it all for? Like, you know, uh, it, it, it's just an interest, interesting interaction to see these giant animal stories like the pandemic. It's not a political story. It's not a stock market story. It's an animal story and how it interacted with sports. I, I the entire pandemic, I've been tracking that and just been interested in that. I'm curious what you thought. Yeah, well, so um, is it not interesting that the, that, um, the most insistent part of the culture in the reopening is like, we've got to play sports. I mean, it, it's, it, it, it kind of led the way. And like in my kids' lives, I got kids who play sports. That, that's the thing that if they were gonna get COVID, the most likely place they were gonna get COVID was in their sports lives because those were the places that were taking the biggest risk. Um, because that was the, 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 for whatever reason in their world, those people felt that was the most that was that was what you opened for for the play and it actually you know i was going to ask you it's funny if you thought of sports as a serious subject because i wondered if that wasn't a difference between us in the, and i think of it as like a deadly serious subject like it, it is play and play is incredibly serious uh and, yeah. yeah 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 so when I, so when i take it on you know i think they've been movie i'd love to hear you speak to movie makers but with authors there's a history of like serious writers taking time off from their serious writing to do the sports book just because that's just to show their you know you know people with dimensions david halberstam was a great example i was about to say halberstam's the one that immediately comes to yes. mind it's like yeah. alternating massive tomes on american government with you know a book about bill walton and uh, and where he clearly takes the sports subject less seriously than he takes the other subject. That's it's sort of like I'm condescending to come. I'm coming down from the peak to to write about what the people are doing. And I I've, I've never felt that at all. I felt when I moved from I don't know whatever I was writing about Silicon Valley or politics into Moneyball, I felt like I had an even bigger, more important subject. I didn't feel I didn't feel like this is like a lighter subject. And I, I don't think, um, I don't think it is. And I don't think you look the way people respond to it. I don't think it is. You know, it's funny, we were talking, we were talking about kind of our sweaty little sports moments that we keep our little highlight reel in our head. That's like a distortion of our actual experience. And I have one of those from my, my limited academic career when I was at Temple University, which I dropped out of my senior year, but I was in English class <laughs> reading Moby Dick. And 
there was something about the significance of why is it a whale? Like, what does the whale symbolize? And I, I had like this one great moment in the class where I was like, the whale symbolizes that it could be anything. It doesn't matter that it's a whale. It's the, and then the teacher was like, very good. The indeterminance of referentiality. And I was like, look at me looking legit. Meanwhile, I was like, you know, doing stand-up comedy and drinking beers at Dirty Franks and stuff. But I had this one kind of moment of clarity where like, it doesn't matter that it's a whale. And it's in the same sense that it doesn't matter that it's NASCAR in Talladega Nights. It doesn't matter that it's baseball. When I read Moneyball, I was at my low point with baseball. I was the least interested I'd ever been in baseball because of the steroids, because of everything that had been going on. And I was completely engrossed by it. And then I loved the movie. And, and even my wife was like, you're watching a baseball movie? I thought you didn't really watch baseball anymore. And it was like, it doesn't matter. And in a way that got me back into baseball because of that. You're like, oh yeah, it doesn't really matter. It could be in a way it really could be cornhole. Like, I mean, if cornhole, if the Civil War soldiers, if the Civil War soldiers had started instead of like hitting an old, you know, pig bladder with a stick, you know, to start baseball, however they started, if they had instead had been just throwing a, a hunk of chewing tobacco into a hole, well, Reggie Jackson's in front of 50,000 people in 1979 throwing a hunk of chewing, you know, throwing a, a leather representation of the chewing tobacco into a hole and we're making candy bars of them, you so, know. So just as a, a digression, then we'll come back. My introduction to corn to the cornhole game was my in-laws, uh, nice older people who live in Rhode Island. They had a, the set and we showed up for Thanksgiving and they said, do you want a cornhole? <laughs> and come I, on. I thought, I thought, you didn't just say that. How did this game get that name? And how has it managed to preserve that name on, on like G-rated television? I, I don't get, I don't quite get, but anyway, so, so you're right. Coming back to, it's absolutely right that it doesn't matter what the game is. It makes it kind of interesting in the case of Moneyball that the game has been played for a hundred years and people have been looking yes. at it exactly the same way. So I've been cornholing for a hundred years and they and someone comes along and says, no, 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 no. You flip the beanbag, you know, underhand rather than over, and it changes everything. It, you would get the same effect. And then you'd find, but for me, so they asked, for me, when one of these stories becomes electric is, is when uh, the analytics is, that's all very interesting. And it's got a kind of, you know, there's, an, there's just a, intellectual interest in figuring out new stuff about the game but when all of a sudden you it is turning an old value system on its head and all of a sudden people who thought they were great actually maybe they're not as good as they thought they were and and all of a sudden people who didn't understand their own value are, get get revalued that to me is when there's like a story that that's the moment when i i think i'm really interested in that when, when like it's hitting people you know, it's hitting people where they live in who they thought they were based on their memories from when they were 12 years old playing baseball. Uh, you know, it's, it's, um, th that's how I got engaged with it. Um, well, so it's how similar, it's similar, like when we, when I was writing at Saturday Night Live, I would notice the sketches that you could do the craziest stuff with were the most familiar uh, settings. 
So for instance, I used to write with this guy, his real name was Norm Hiscock. He used to be head writer of Kids in the Hall and he's a brilliant writer. And he and I would write on Tuesday nights at three in the morning, we would write insane sketches that just made us laugh. And we found that one of the best forms was the job interview sketch because everyone knows it. It's really familiar. And it allowed us, we ended up writing one, I wrote it with Rob Carlock. I don't think I wrote that one with Norm, Dennis McNicholas. And it was Chris Parnell as a centaur applying for a job at a hospital with Chris Walken, who was being a bit discriminatory because he's a centaur. <laughs> now, if you just did that sketch and they were walking down the street, it's unmoored. Right, you have right. no routine to kind of set it against. Right, but because we had the routine of a job interview, and the big line in the sketch was, you know, are you going to ask me about my qualifications as a doctor? And Walken said, No, uh, all of the questions from now on will be centaur questions, and um, but without the job interview format, you can't do that. And that's the way I kind of look at sports. And I love what you're, because sports is this immovable frame. Yes. We all know, which is why there's so many good boxing movies, right? We all know that boxing is terrifying. It's hard. People that do it usually have had a hard scrabble life. Like they've come from a tough situation. And we know they've got to deal with like trauma and character issues. And it's raw and it's simple. And we're all there. Even if you don't watch boxing, you get what's going on. Yeah. And I like what you're talking about because you're talking about changing that immovable frame of the story. Like what happens when that frame changes? What happens when Andre Drummond, a two-time all-star in like six months goes to, he has to get bought out by his team because no one wants to trade for him, even though he's amazing because the three-point shot, yes, everything. Yes. You know, and how does Andre Drummond go from top of the world? The guy's a two-time all-star. That's huge in the NBA to, hey, man, sorry, no one wanted to trade for you. Your value doesn't work in this new NBA. Like, what does that do to your head? Or, or the reverse is like probably someone like J.J. Redick, who, who was borderline NBA coming in and the game just, he, was, he caught a wave. What he could do became the thing that was most valued. Uh, exactly. And, exactly. Yeah. It's like the guy who learns the knuckleball when he's 38 years old yeah. and suddenly has value where, who was the guy for the Braves back in the eighties? Glenn Hubbard. Is that who it was? You're not thinking Necro? No. Well, Necro was the knuckleball master, but there was right. a second baseman, a utility second oh, baseman right. who picked up the knuckleball and got like an extra year and a half out of his career. Right. Um, but I'm interested in what you're talking about because you're talking about changing the actual framework, which is where I think we are storytelling wise with sports. I think that the outside forces, which always, it, it's the reason there's really not a good World War II sports movie, if you think about it. The outside forces are too big. Like Victory, the soccer movie, if you watch it, it's like, who cares? Like, <laughs> it's like, you know, like, I don't care if he beat the Nazis at soccer and the whole movie plays it like we do care. And by the way, God bless all the people who made victory, but you don't care ever. Like they actually bring guys out of Auschwitz to be soccer players. And that's an actual scene in that movie. And you're like, who freaking cares? And they end up escaping after the game winning goal. It's like, why didn't you just escape? The first two minutes, like who freaking cares about soccer? Like, 
But it's a tribute. It's a tribute to the power of sports that the people who made that movie thought someone would care. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's like it really matters who wins this game. And you should hear the score at the end of it. It's very funny to go back and look at because the score, which is a beautiful score, is just a hundred percent confident that you care about the outcome of this soccer game when we're about to discover the greatest crime in human history, the final solution. <laughs> that we care about Sylvester Stallone blocking a penalty kick. That's the, <laughs> that's the end of that movie. It's like Hogan's Heroes too. It's like, I can't laugh with the characters at Hogan's Heroes because 30 miles away, there's a concentration camp. Like I just don't. We had a geography teacher in the fifth grade named Mr. Cernicek who had actually come out of a concentration camp. And we, everybody in my grade loved Hogan's Heroes. And he heard us. Oh my he, God. He heard us doing Schultz and, you know, doing all the imitations. And he, he gets canceled geography for a class and explained to us what the hell had happened. We had no idea. I mean, we, it was, we're, oh in Jewish, we're in a God. Jewish school and we have no idea. You know, it's like a bunch of 10 year old boys. And, uh, and our jaws were on the floor and I could not watch Hogan's Heroes again. Ever you know? again. Ever. Ever again. No, the show makes no sense. And then on top of it, you find out the main character is like a, sex addict who is videotaping himself then it gets even like the levels <laughs> darkness that were being swept under on that show were just multi-layered um but that's really it like can so my question is so you oh, talked saying, about st structural change right with analytics but what do we do now when there's a world series game going on and smoke blows onto the field because it's not just like the smoke is an inconvenience <laughs> It's like the demise of the human animal is looming over a baseball game. Right. It's harder and harder to pay attention to the baseball game. Yeah. But, but, but this, so how do we square this with the intense passion with which people are engaging with sports in the middle of a pandemic? Uh, that, that it didn't seem to dull the interest in sports. Um, maybe that the pandemic isn't, regard, isn't the existential event that are crisis that uh, well, our culture is also deranged i mean american culture is just so bent in this bizarre almost pornographic way towards entertainment and escape i mean yeah. everything about the way we live and i include myself in this as a filmmaker and tv show maker uh and so yeah our culture is weird because the european countries didn't go that hard at the sports like they wanted it back, but they were like kind of, we were just immediately like, can you play, can you play basketball in a hazmat suit? Like that was like the second question that was asked. <laughs> and by the way, here's how deranged I am. I was waiting for the answer. I'm like, I want to watch, I want to watch basketball too. Like that's how part, that's how American I am. I, I One of my characters in the book I've just finished is like, a world's expert on how you would open something up, how you would do it. And he got a call from the, the someone in the Warriors saying, this was like nine months ago, saying, how do we fill the arena? Oh, wow. it sort of like, yeah, it was sort of like, there isn't a, there isn't a way. <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't fill the arena. And it's, it's anyway, so we, we don't have that many minutes until we go to Q&A. I, I want to talk about Talladega Nights for a minute. Sure. Because that movie, might be 
the movie, the most agreed upon movie in our household. It's the one movie that nobody <laughs> says, no, I don't want to watch that. If we all say, let's have a movie night. And we probably watch it as a family five times. And if I said tonight, I want to watch it, everybody would crawl into bed and watch it all over again. I love it. I love and it. so I want to know what you were, what you thought you were up to when you made it and what, whether the response to it was what you imagined it would be. So it was at the peak of the W. Bush Cheney experience. It was the moment where like W. Bush was like 88% approval rating. I can't remember if we had invaded Iraq or not. I think we were in the middle of invading Iraq when we were making the movie. And it was this moment where everyone says, I always ask this question, like, when did you know America had taken a strange turn? And for me, it was during that first Gore W. Bush debate, when W. Bush was so obviously not qualified, it was embarrassing. And then I had sane friends of mine looking me in the eye and saying, I thought W. Bush was great. And I was like, I've never, this is weird. So Farrell and I were like, let's dive into this. Both of us have lots of relatives from the South. We love the South. So there's no animosity towards the South in any kind of larger sense. But at the time, people forget uh, that NASCAR was gigantic at that period. I mean, it was really like swelling. And we both just felt like, let's just go into this. We don't know a lot about it, but let's research it. Let's meet the people. Let's dive in and let's see if we can do this movie that's both about this runaway American pride, this culture and a guy kind of coming to grips with it. And let's see if we can make it funny as hell. So Judd Apatow read our first rough script. And he said, guys, this reads like two pissed off Hollywood liberals who are mad that W. Bush is in power. And we're like, Judd, we are pissed off Hollywood. We're not I, you know, we're not from Hollywood, but we're too pissed off. I'm from Philly, you know, although Will's from Irvine. And I go, so it is, but do you think it's funny enough? And he goes, yeah, it's pretty damn funny. So we went and made it. And the opening night, Michael Moore called me from Michigan. And he said, I just walked out of your movie and you've made the most subversive movie of the year and no one realizes it. The audience has cheered it. And I said, you know, Michael, we're not, we like the Deep South. Like we had a great time in Charlotte. Like we liked the food. We liked the people, except for the one unspeakable part of it. We, you know, we liked the South. So we weren't, he goes, oh, come on, shut the F up. Like, what are you talking about? But the big thing for us was we also love sports movies. And our number one challenge was Ricky Bobby cannot win that race. We hate when every sports movie, the guy has to win. Yeah. It's BS, it's lame, it's, it's lazy. Yeah. And so our proudest achievement in that movie was he does not win the race. He loses. And yet it never bothered anyone because his partner, Cal Naughton, got to win the race. And Bobby, Ricky Bobby, won the character thing, which was he raced Jean Girard and then kissed him in the end, got over his own pride and went off with his mangy dad to get thrown out of an Applebee's. <laughs> Did you... But were you surprised that no one got how subversive it was? You know, I, 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 a little bit, but I honestly, in my experience, and I think you've had this too, I can sit down 
with any two or three hard right wing, I mean, with some exceptions, I mean, if they're really out there, I could sit down with a hardcore right wing Southerner and have a grand old time. And there was even a guy who was our set medic on that movie who was telling me how he's an NRA member, he's a Republican, and he thinks it's crazy that assault rifles can be sold retail. Like, so our whole experience making that movie was people going, yeah, of course, you got to raise the minimum wage. Yeah, of course, billionaires should pay more taxes. So I walked away from that experience like we're being gamed, man. We are being, they painted half of us red. They painted the other half blue. We're fighting each other and they are making a fortune. And Charles Koch is sitting back and laughing while this is all happening. So that was actually a seminal moment for me making that movie where I truly realized the scam that was going on. Um, that was a little bit of a detour I gave you on that answer. Was I surprised it was so widely well-received? Yes, I was. And I'm surprised that to this day, there's still a NASCAR driver that puts the wrap on his car of the me car and races an actual NASCAR race every year. I'm trying to remember who it is. I think it's Kyle Busch. I could be wrong on that. He was doing it up until three years ago. I don't know if he's still doing it. Uh, and he claimed that he had seen the movie 50 times. Um, so it, it was really kind of a hopeful moment for Will and I, like, oh, America doesn't have to be deeply and darkly divided. Like if you can make this movie and we can all sit together and laugh our asses off, then we're being scammed, we're being game. So yeah, it was quite experienced. To this day, it's still one of my favorite projects I've ever worked on. I love, I have deep affection for that movie. And I think the family grace scene at the beginning, I've told Will this, I've told my DP, I think it's the best scene I've ever been involved in making of anything, including the Big Short, although the Jenga scene in Big Short, I love a lot. Uh, vice, succession, any of those things. I think that family prayer scene is is the one I might go just watch this. Yeah. So th that it's it's it has a similar sort of place in the movie as the Jenga scene does in the big short movie. You, you get all these characters around a thing. Uh, and it's America. It's yeah. America. And by the way, going back to the sports thing, it has a routine. It's a family prayer. We yeah. all know what that routine is. Oh, religion would go in one of the core six conditions, right? Yeah. Six, sex, food, play, family, religion, survival. You'd have to put some degree of religion in there. Anyway. But to finish with Talladega Nights, did anybody get pissed off? Did you, did you, I mean, when you're, when you are setting out to satirize a thing, but the people who are on the objects of satire don't recognize it as anything but a tribute. Uh, did you think, did, did anybody respond like, oh, you're making fun of us? Or- A couple, but you know, there was enough love in that movie. I mean, I, I try never to write characters I yeah. openly despise. I mean, yeah. I obviously did an entire movie where I tried to find the humanity of Dick Cheney. So, I mean, I really don't, I really do believe everyone wants to be good so I, I, you know, and then we all go wrong a trillion different ways. So I think there was love in that. The big reaction we got was there was a few like hardcore right-wing Christian sites and papers that were really upset about the kiss between John Gerard and Ricky Bobby. And I did hear stories that people stormed out of the theater for the kiss. That ended up being the controversial moment. When I published The Blind Side, 
which was uh, occupied a similar sort of relationship to the conservative South in that, it, except, except it wasn't satire. It was, but it, it could be played as satire. Um, but the, the heroes of the story are a white, rich, evangelical, Christian, Republican family who take in a poor black child and try to turn him into a rich, white, evangelical Republican. Yeah. Right. Uh, my publisher thought we're going to make a fortune because for the first time, Michael Lewis is going to sell books to the evangelical Christian community. And when they embrace something, they really embrace something. So they embraced Talladega Nights, maybe, but the subtitle of my book, The Blind Side, was Evolution of a Game. Oh. And Christian booksellers would not stock the book because the word evolution was on the cover. I mean, Michael, you got to do your scientific research. The earth is only 6,000 years old. Yeah. We're at MIT. I know. Like, I know. MIT knows that. But, but as I said to the publisher, I said they would have smelled me one way or the other. And that they would have realized that something was off about me. And <laughs> I shouldn't, they should never have embraced this. So they embraced the movie, but never really the book. Interesting. And, yes. All right, so we have questions from the audience. And I'll, I guess I'll... Can you see them, Michael? I don't I do. I, I actually have them. And I'll ask them to both of us. I'll right. let you, but I'll ask them to you, and then I'll answer if I have anything to say. Um, are you intentional about telling great stories that have an impact, or are you focused just on in, intrinsic value of storytelling? So that, that's an amazing question. That has changed for me in the sense that I always felt like if you make something that's entertaining, alive, cool, interesting, that that's a value unto itself, which I still believe, by the way. But then when the world really went off the rails, where it just got so cartoonish and gigantic, and it was really your book. I bumped into your book. That was it. That's what changed my course. Because, and I loved what you did. You were able to tell a great story with great characters. And yet it was about the world we live in. And yet it was entertaining and artful. And once I saw that that could be done and I read your book, I'm like, oh, I want to do this. So that was it for me. I mean, what about you? Clearly your books harmonize with the world, but then you've also written stuff like The Blind Side, like the story of your coach, your beloved coach, that's not directly about this, you know, bizarre turn that civilization's taking. How conscious of you are you about that? So, you know, my eldest child, now 21, has been hounding me for five years uh, to write a climate change book. And this is, so this is a funny way of answering the question. I recognize that is, this is the most important subject, but because I can't figure out how to do it, uh, I don't want to just write a book about climate change. So th that's a way of saying that I fail when you judge me um, by my political purpose. I fail. I, that I I don't I don't start there. I start with, and I, and I, and I actually don't even start with wanting people who read the story to come around to my point of view about something. Um, no, I don't think you can. I agree with that. I, I think there has to be a story. There has to be 
a shape. I mean, even with the Cheney one, which was the hardest one I've ever done, when I learned that Lynn Cheney had come from an, a, a rough household and I realized the whole story was him protecting her his entire career, I was like, that's the story. It was enough. And that was probably the hardest one. But yeah, you have to. I agree with that. I mean, I did just make a movie that is kind of about climate change. And I racked my brain for two years and I finally came up with a fairly simple idea that I liked. But I wouldn't have done it if I didn't have that idea. I, I, I think basically I agree with you on that. And, and, it's, it's, and I think it's this, that I feel a little subversive towards my own stuff in that I want to feel when I'm done, like someone who doesn't agree with me can pick it up and turn this into their thing. Like it actually made me kind of happy that Liar's Poker got picked up and used by kids as a how-to manual for how to get ahead on Wall Street. I, I, because I, I don't, I, the, I, what I like is the engagement, the, the level of the intensity of the feeling that the reader has towards the work. Um, and I don't pretend to be able to kind of muscle them around. And so, so I think I lead with story, but, and with, for me, story has increasingly to a ridiculous degree become about characters. And that, that I start with some person I just have gotten very, very interested in. And they may lead me to, it's nice. It's actually, you know, I probably, if they're not leading me someplace I feel is important at some level, I wouldn't go there, but um, I wouldn't be so interested in them. But it kind of starts with them. And, um, and I'm just, I become in, entranced enough with them that I want to get across them. And I'm getting across other things in the bargain. So it really that's true. I think it's like saying, look, I'm a violin player. I want to write a violin piece about global warming, but it's really hard. So I'm not going to play the violin, but I'm going to still do it. Like, I mean, it is ultimately like I'm going to play it on the kazoo. I'm going to play it on the, the drums. Yeah. Like ultimately you write stories, you write characters, you kind of have to like somewhat live in that world. So I, I agree. Is there another uh, question? Yeah, there is. So do you deliberately tweak details for dramatic effect when it comes to portraying players? If so, what do you tend to accentuate? Well, I mean, you know, I wrote the, the script about nine years ago, it's a television movie about the Boston Celtics. And I made Greg Kite, uh, an all NBA player who scored, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just had to get a great kite reference in. Um, like in your podcast. You're, you're, so so death, it's Death of the Wing? Death at the Wing. It's death about all wing. those rising stars yeah. who died in the 80s and in the 90s. Yeah. No, we don't tweak anything. No, no, you got to, we fact check everything. The only thing with Vice, we, we play out some scenes where we don't know word for word that it happened, but everything was, you can't make something up. I mean, it has to be real. And then you can assume certain scenes because you got to write it. But no, it, and Death at the Wing is completely fact-checked, all of it's fact-checked. You may disagree with my initial premise, but everything within it's fact-checked. You don't do that either, right? I've never seen you do that. No, it's interesting this because uh, I have found over and again, you can't help when you're writing something to think, wow, you know, it would be cool if this person had a third nipple you know, or whatever it is, like some yeah. weird thing that you're thinking, you're thinking, wow, that with this trait would, it would be not. And, but every time I find myself doing that, every time I find myself like wanting to introduce something about the character, that's not true. 
I find that if I actually go the other way and embrace what's bothering me, the truth, that it gets, it takes me a better place to a better place. Couldn't agree but, more. You know, the perfect example, Michael, is the big short. One of the characters that had a very tragic, uh, horrible uh, death in their family. And they asked me for the movie not to include it. And you can't say no to that. You just can't. So I came back and I said, I need a tragedy. I want to be respectful. Can I come up with a fictional tragedy? And the person was gracious. They checked with their family and they said yes. So that was a case where we changed something that happened, but it was respectful and it still kept the same dramatic proportions. But I'm with you. The, uh, the, it's the oldest cliche, but boy, does it just keep holding water that the real world is far stranger than whatever we can dream of. That's no, absolutely true. And I, I, it's laziness that I'm usually confronted. It's my own laziness that leads me to think, oh, I, should, I, should, I, I wish I could make this person something different. Having said that, when I think of, in a sense, maybe in a different sense, um, I mean, so when you're characterizing someone, you're naturally exaggerating some things about them. I mean, you're, you're, you're pointing out some things about them and not pointing out other things about them oftentimes. And, um, and so, I don't know, uh, Moneyball, uh, the, um, the sheer lack of athleticism of Chad Bradford, relief pitcher, who has <laughs> one thing he can do is throw a ball underhanded. And the one reason he's able to do that is his father had an injury, and when there was when he was a little boy, and his, his father could only throw underhanded. So to throw throw a baseball with his dad, he learns from a very early age how to do that, and it ends up being worth millions of dollars. But he can't tie shoelaces otherwise. That's beautiful. It, it was absolutely beautiful, and it, and it was, and and it, he that he himself, when you asked how you learned how to do that, he says, I, I don't really know. And I went go, go visit him and his dad's in a wheelchair. And his dad tells me that, yeah, when we throw the ball, we throw it like that. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, said, I couldn't throw. So I threw it underhand and he'd throw it underhand back to me. I didn't hear from the dad that Chad himself did not understand that that's where it all came from. Oh, I love um, that. And, and, but, but you naturally, so in that case, I mean, is Chad Bradford is, probably not a lot a lot less athletic than you or me but 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 i i i do like play up his lack of ath athleticism and you do so you do reach for the things that are important to get across and i put it another way i don't know when you I, you this is a we both had the experience of people in the real world seeing themselves portrayed by us <laughs> In my experience, I, I've just had it right now because I have a book that's coming out in three weeks and there are three people who just read it uh, and they don't have any right to change it. And What's I, the name of your book again? It's called Premonition, right? It's called The Premonition. And we're going to, we're supposed to wind up in two seconds, but I just want to make this point that when they read it, I always tell them, remember what it was like when you first heard your, the sound of your own voice recorded? You're going to say, I don't know, that's me. It doesn't really sound like me. Give it to someone who loves you or knows you and have them read it and then tell me it's not you. So I, true. Yeah. Greg Lippman from The Big Short, remember how he was so angry about the way he was portrayed. And by the way, I got along with him fine, but he was mad about the way he was portrayed. The movie came out. He loved it. Right. He emails me once every six months and just yep. says hi. Couldn't be. <laughs> All right, Adam, we're at the end of this. 
total pleasure to see you and uh, see it again down the road soon, I hope. Uh, congrats on your book, The Premonition. I can't wait to read it. And I always love connecting with you, Michael. Great. Take care. Bye. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.